What a wonderful hymn reflecting on the five truths flowing from the Reformation that we celebrate today, 504 years later. Over the course of the last four weeks, I've had the joy of spending time with our students here at Woodlawn teaching a class on the Christian life. What is the gospel? What does uh, the Christian life look like in the life of the church? And then individually, how do we express this faith? And one of our assignments through our time together was to reflect on ways in which Woodlawn herself, Woodlawn Baptist herself, uh, disciples our children. And parents, grandparents, if you don't have your children in our children's choir, you are missing an incredible opportunity to have their hearts, their minds, their affections um, discipled, if you will, formed through our children's programs. Randy and uh, Kendra, thank you so much for leading that music program for so many years. We're grateful for you. And the five truths of the Reformation flow out of the first four stanzas of that hymn, if you see that hymn, and then, of course, the chorus, your word alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. And that's what we attempt to do as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we seek to make much of the person of Christ in the life of our congregation. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14, as we conclude our time together in chapter 14 this week. Last week, we looked at showing Christian charity or Christian hospitality toward one another and those matters and those aspects that are of, non, of a non-essential nature. And Paul continues to reflect on those non-essential items, particularly in the life of the church at Rome. There was a Jewish presence and a Gentile presence, and for those Gentile believers, they had been taught the Torah. They had been taught the Old Testament law of God, and there was part of their hearts that were so drawn to fulfilling aspects of the Mosaic law that they struggled with this understanding of freedom in Christ, of Christian liberty. And Paul is writing to remind the brothers and sisters in Christ at the Church of Rome that we should indeed show Christian charity and hospitality toward one another in those areas that are of a non-essential nature. And concluding here in chapter 14 this morning, Paul reminds us of this simple biblical truth, better to demonstrate love than freedom. Better to demonstrate Christian love than Christian liberty. We live, as we noted last week, in a culture, and it's nothing that's new for our culture. It's been this way from, for all of time. We see easily the differences among one another. It doesn't take a lot of work. I don't have to work hard to find differences in the body of Christ. In the same way in the context of my home or in the context of the relationship with my wife or with friendship. 
It doesn't take much work to find differences. Those things just kind of naturally come out. And we have an option. Will I spend my time focused on those differences, or will I spend my time focused on pursuing love in the context of the body of Christ? Now notice Paul here in chapter 14 is primarily talking about those relationships in which you and I find ourselves in covenant relationship with one another. Paul is particularly focused on how we are to relate to one another very specifically in the context of the body of Christ at Woodlawn. Now that doesn't mean that I can't take some of these principles and apply them to other relationships. Of course, I can apply these principles to other relationships, but in the context of this passage of scripture, Paul is adamant that we as brothers and sisters in Christ in a given very specific congregation are to relate to one another in this way. It is better that we demonstrate toward one another love than Christian liberty. Now Paul, in this passage of scripture, primarily focuses upon those who demonstrate Christian liberty. Or as he would note it in 15 verse one, Paul's primary focus in chapter 14 verses 23, verses 13 down through 23, is on the stronger Christian, on the stronger brother and sister. The brother or sister that rightly understands that they do not have to pay attention to these dietary laws or these calendrical observations that flow from the Old Testament, that there is indeed great freedom in Christ as it relates to those things. But as I noted last week, I want to note again this morning at the beginning that Paul in relationship to faith here is not talking about a salvific faith. This is not a conversation on whether you are a believer or not a believer. Paul is assuming, in fact, the structure of the Greek New Testament in this text of scripture is arguing from the uh, presupposition that indeed these people are brothers and sisters in Christ, but as it relates to faith, it's it's not a saving faith, it is a faith that relates to our process of sanctification or we might say it this way, he's speaking of faith as it relates to a sense of piety. And he begins here in chapter 14, verse 13, with this plea that we demonstrate love rather than Christian liberty with this admonition. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather let us pass judgment to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. Paul is making a plea at the very beginning of chapter, of chapter 14, verse 13, that we not pass judgment on one another any longer. And it's a reference back to what he has just communicated in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, and particularly the end part of those verses, verses 10, 11, and 12. For Paul reminds us in the context of that passage of scripture, as it relates to 
judging one another in regard to piety, that ultimately God is our judge. Remember, he's not talking about issues that are a very clear distinction in the context of Scripture. For example, Paul is not saying, well, brothers and sisters in the context of the church, don't be passing judgment on that, on that brother who is having sexual relationships outside of marriage. Just let God judge him. Well, friends, whether we should engage in sexual activity inside of marriage or outside of marriage is not a conversation that is up for debate in the context of the passage of Scripture. The Word of God is very clear. We should pursue sexual uh, purity and relationship solely in the context of marriage. This isn't up for debate. But whether you can mow your grass on Sunday afternoon or not is a matter of Christian liberty. My dad had been called to pastor church in 1993 in the panhandle of Florida, just north of Panama City Beach. No one bothered to tell us that part of the gig of my dad serving at this local church was that his family had to mow the five acres of property at the church. Not only the, the pastorum plot of land, but we had to mow the, the church, and more than mow the church, there was a graveyard. And we had to mow the graveyard. Don't get any ideas, by the way. But for a young 13-year-old boy, there was a sense of excitement because this church had a massive old school lawnmower with like a, it, I mean, in, in my mind, it was like a 96 inch deck. And it was gray and it was massive. It was actually like riding a, a like little small tractor. So for a 13 year old boy, this was really exciting. We had in fact moved to this church from having lived on a 2000 acre farm ranch. So I was very familiar with driving tractors and, and stuff like that. So I couldn't wait to, to mow. Well, on this particular Sunday, without asking my father's permission, it was a tradition in my house that after Sunday morning, we had lunch, and then after lunch, my daddy was going to take a nap. It didn't matter. Sundays were a nap day. I'm th- Amen, Randy. I'm 13. I'm 13. I don't want to take a nap. This is crazy. Aha. Uh-huh. That lawnmower was still new. I had probably already mowed the lawn three times that week, but another opportunity to jump on this massive lawnmower and ride around five acres was very appealing for a 13-year-old boy. So I jumped on the lawnmower and started mowing. And all of a sudden, I see Mama running out of the front door, waving her hands as if somebody has just died inside the house and needs my immediate assistance. So I stop the lawnmower, get off, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm mowing the lawn. It's Sunday. We don't work on Sundays. Well, what lesson was my mom and dad trying to teach me about Sunday? My dad and mom were trying to instill within me an important aspect of the Lord's day 
and for my mom and dad, mowing the lawn on Sunday was beyond what I should be doing as a young man, and particularly the example that my dad's family should be setting for this community as it relates to the Lord's Day. So guess what? I never mowed again on a Sunday. These are the aspects that Paul is talking about. Can you go out to a restaurant and eat after lunch today and it not be sin? Sure. Can you go out to a restaurant and eat after lunch today and it be sin? Sure. Say, wait a minute. That seems like two contradictory things. Paul answered that question for us last week. He's going to answer that for us again today at the very end in verses 22 and 23. So don't conflate Paul's aspect of judgment against those things that the Scripture for certain declares we as believers must do. For example, the Bible compels us as believers to gather with the people of God on the Lord's Day. And to neglect this gathering is sin. It's sinful. That's not up for debate. But whether you go home this afternoon and mow your lawn is absolutely up for debate. And in those situations, Paul says, be careful how you judge. But rather, Paul says, change your mindset. This is something that we must, as brothers and sisters in Christ, intentionally do. We must make an intentional decision to encourage one another. Would you purpose in your heart right now to be an encouraging believer? We must encourage one another. Look, Paul says it in the negative here at the end of verse 13, but rather decide, as my Bible translates it here in the ESV, it's the exact same word that he just used at the first part of verse 13, judge. So he just said to us, don't pass judgment on one another any longer. And then he comes here at the end of verse 13 and says, but rather decide, or rather right now, purpose in your heart uh, to not pass judgment on another brother or sister as a means of putting a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. We are not to be a hindrance toward one another. We must make a decision at this very moment to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is going to seek to encourage the body of Christ. Now understand, Paul is assuming a number of things for the sake of argument. Paul is absolutely assuming that there are multiple things in the life of a church that will indeed cause a hindrance. In other words, we're going to offend each other from time to time. The question for you and me is, will I be, will I allow myself to continually always be offended, or will I be the person who's always intentionally seeking to offend people over non-essential issues? And Paul is saying, 
If the church is truly going to demonstrate the love that Christ has called us to in chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, or in John chapter 12, and the new commandment that he's given to us to love one another, we must purpose, we must decide at this very moment that I am going to be, that you are going to be, that we are going to be a brother or sister who seeks to encourage, not to be a stumbling block or an, or an, an, an hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. Why? Verse 14. Why should we think in this way? Paul says, because I am persuaded. In what way? In the Lord Jesus Christ. That nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. You might remember the story in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is really struggling with this principle. He's really having a hard time with this idea of Christian freedom as he's coming from a Jewish background. For Peter, it was absolutely a must that the faith of one, particularly a young man, be demonstrated through circumcision. And so the church here in Acts in Acts chapter 10, or not the church yet, but here in Acts chapter 10, we're going to look at Acts chapter 15 here in a few moments. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter is actually going to get a vision from the Lord Jesus Christ himself as it relates to what one can eat or what one cannot eat in relationship to these ceremonial laws from the Old Testament. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 15. This is now the third time that the Lord has given this vision to Peter. And the voice came to him again, sorry, the second time, the second time, and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Three times. The Lord had to appear to Peter to penetrate his hard head that food was not unclean, even food that would be declared unclean through a law of the Old Testament. Not only is Paul reflecting on this visitation, I think, from the Lord Jesus Christ to Peter, but Paul also, as a good Pharisee, would have known the words of Christ as well. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, has something to say about this very topic. Listen at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the deceased bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. This is not the text of Scripture I was wanting to read to you. I have had a brain malfunction up here. 
The text I'm wanting to read to you is Jesus declaring uh, to the disciples that it is not what we put in our mouths that defile a person, but what defiles a person? That which comes out of the mouth, and it's not here in Matthew chapter seven, verse 15. Mark, Mark seven. Thank you, Lynn. So for Jesus, Jesus has set the paradigm for us. Jesus has set the truth for us of that which is lawful, that which is clean, and he reminds us that all things that God himself has created, those things are good and right for you and me to eat. Look at Paul's admonition in, in 1 Timothy chapter four. Now I know I'm right on this one. 1 Timothy chapter four, verses three through five. First Timothy chapter four, verses three through five. Listen at Paul's words here. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you ever wanted to know why you should pray before your meals, here's one of the texts of scriptures that commands us or gives evidence for us praying before we, before we eat. So Paul is given to us a tradition that comes from the Lord Jesus himself. I am persuaded, verse 14, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So I asked a question a few moments ago. Might it be sinful for you to go home and mow the yard after church today? And the answer is yes. Paul's going to flesh this out again in verses 22 and 23. God has given to each of us a conscience. And Paul is making a strong appeal that we live, that we obey our conscience. And those issues that we have a deep-seated conviction concerning we ought to walk in those issues. Now, does that mean that you can't challenge me, for example, if I think you should not be mowing on Sunday afternoons? Does that mean that you can't challenge me or push me or try to persuade me that I should back away from that statement? No, have at it. And may God, by his word and through his spirit, convict, convince us of which one is most appropriate. But for the one who believes eating meat that was uh, strangled, as the Old Testament law would forbid, you ought not to eat that meat. But Paul is actually making a plea. Everything God has created, that pig that your Jewish neighbor does not want to eat, is delicious and given by God. Paul is persuaded by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he founds his statement in verse 13 upon and his statement here in verse 15 as he continues to encourage us, encourage us to be believers who encourage, intentionally encourage others. Verse 15, for if your brother is, notice this next word, 
if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. See, Paul is saying that to grieve another brother or sister in Christ is the opposite of what the gospel has called us to. This word used here for grieve is a word of intense emotion. And you're right to think of this word in the context, for example, of the loss of life. It's an appropriate use of this word. We grieve. We experience deep pain at the loss of life. And you might can imagine in the context of this church in Rome, where you had a Jewish, a, a Jewish group of people who had been taught their entire lives that certain things were unclean. You can imagine how it would grieve them to think that another person could participate in that meal and at the same time claim to be a follower of God. Because in their mind, wait a minute, like just 10 years ago, if you would have participated in the eating of this meal, the Bible would have condemned you for that. And so Paul is giving us a stern warning that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ intentionally seek to encourage one another by making sure we're not grieving, intentionally grieving one another. And notice what he says, for you to intentionally grieve another brother or sister is you not walking in love. For example, Paul, in just a few moments, is going to mention the issue of, of wine, of drinking wine. My family and I have a very strong conviction that alcohol should always be avoided. We practice abstinence in regard to alcohol in the context of my family. And I'm not telling you that one of my kids might not one day participate. I'm just simply saying to you, as long as they live at my house, we're not doing that. But I have to be very careful that my conviction in this way is not binding the conscience of another brother or sister who might think having a glass of wine at a meal is completely, totally appropriate. But in the context of this passage of Scripture, the image that Paul is giving us would be toward those who find drinking a glass of wine at a meal okay, and if you invite me over to your house, you should not offer that glass of wine. You shouldn't ask me if I want to partake. Why? you know my conviction on that. And if you didn't know my conviction, you know it now. Paul is concerned that perhaps you might be trying to make a point. Or perhaps I understand that you have a view concerning the Lord's Day, that for you, 
A Sunday should be a deep day of reflection, a day of rest, a day given totally, completely, in every measurable way to the Lord and reflecting on his word and time spent with your family. In the same way, if I invited you over and said this afternoon, let's go to Top Golf, and then when we're finished at Top Golf, let's go to the bowling alley, also that I can make some type of point toward you, what is Paul saying? Don't do it. That's not being very kind or loving. See, friends, it is the case in every relationship that from time to time, I have to lay aside certain convictions to obtain the unity of the faith as it relates to non-essentials. But how do these non-essentials most often function in the life of the church? As a means of division. And Paul is saying we shouldn't be walking around looking for ways that we can intentionally find that we can harp upon, that show us that we're different in some measurable way. We should be looking for every conceivable chance to show Christian charity. But notice what he says next here in verses 16, 17, 18, and 19. Why do we want to be cautious about this division? Because division can undermine our Christian testimony. Division can undermine our Christian testimony. Look what he says, verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. In other words, don't abuse your Christian liberty. Don't try to force your conviction on a non-essential down the throat of another person. Otherwise, it runs the chance of being spoken of as evil. Why? Verse 16. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. See, we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, how we relate to one another. How we relate to one another can actually do the opposite of what we're seeking to do in the context of the body of Christ. We are seeking to be a people that live our lives on mission with God compelling other people to trust in Christ, and that trust in Christ bears immediate implications in our hearts and lives that determines how we live our lives. But as is the case, oftentimes, it's not necessarily what we believe, but how we flesh that belief out that really declares to others what we really believe. In other words, if you believe that God has called us to be peace-loving, kind, gracious people, 
but every time we have a members meeting, you're the person that's always causing division. Well, don't be offended when we question your Christian character, right? So Paul is saying, church, be careful how you live your life. Be careful how you relate to one another. You might undermine the faith that you profess. Now look with me in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we have the church council. It's going to speak to this issue of of clean and, and unclean foods. Acts chapter 15, look at verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, notice the text of Scripture says they're believers. They belong to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and says, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This is the issue. Is this a proper means of displaying my faith in Christ? Well, look what the church ends up doing in verse 22. Because of this division, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard this, that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you, with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word and mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, what is the ultimate aim of this letter that has been written? Unity expressing love rather than Christian liberty. For the Gentiles, see, they were opposed to food that has been sacrificed to idols. The Gentiles live, think of Ephesus. All of these pagan temples where sacrifices would have been made to foreign gods. And for the Gentiles, they're thinking the opposite of what the Jews are thinking. They're thinking, wait a minute, how can we participate? How can I eat this meat that has just been sacrificed in a, in a pagan temple to a foreign god. In their minds, that was just as preposterous as it was to the Jews who didn't want you to eat any meat that had been strangled. And so the apostles and the elders and the church in Jerusalem say to the rest of the churches, it is a good idea that you pursue Christian love and peace and harmony. Why? Paul reminds us 
This is the example of what God through Christ has done for us. We don't gather in this church to argue about the color of the carpet or what brick we should have or not have or what type of piano we should have. We gather as brothers and sisters for the purpose of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is actually reminding us that if we spend our energies pursuing these things, righteousness, joy, and peace, all of these other tertiary issues amazingly just work themselves out. Think about it in the context of marriage. When you got married, how quick did it take for you to realize there are actually few things that you and that pretty lady agree with? And there's many more that you disagree with. I think the toilet paper should go over and she thinks it should go under. I cannot stand toothpaste that is squeezed in the center of the tube and sends half of it down and the other half up. It drives me bonkers to brush my hair with my hairbrush that has 602 pounds of ladies' hair in it. She's not bothered one bit by that. Doesn't care. What are you continually having to do in the context of that relationship? Lay aside. Pursue joy and peace. Now you can do the reverse. But if you do the reverse, you're going to get exactly what the text of Scripture here is saying you ought not to do. You're going to get hell on earth. You're going to get problems. So even in the context of marriage, we learn exactly what Paul is, is calling us to here in the text of Scripture. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. What makes for peace and mutual upbringing? He's already told us, chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This, friends, is what it looks like to demonstrate love rather than Christian liberty. And look at verses 20. And 21, division not only destroys relationships in our Christian testimony, it destroys the work of God. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I would say for the majority of us, the relationship of eating meat isn't a problem. If I invited you over to my house tonight for a variety of different meats, you would say, absolutely, I'll be glad to be there, right? But move the conversation out of 
the one issue that we don't have any problem with because for the most majority of us, we can sit back and think, oh, this is great. I've got this. But think about the hundred other things. How loud should the sound technician run the soundboard on a Sunday morning? How long should the preacher preach today? Just keep filling in the blanks, right? We can keep filling in the blanks. And unfortunately, for the majority of us, including myself, those are the issues that we end up focusing on. And notice what Paul says, we end up destroying the work of God. Friends, think of how many God-honoring, Bible-believing congregations have been split just over the last two years over a little issue called COVID. Why? Because the temptation of the church is to shift her focus from the gospel and towards these other things that highlight our divisions and the implication of those divisions. Churches are closed. Christian organizations are closing at a rapid pace because they lack funding. What ultimately is destroyed, friends? Paul says what is ultimately destroyed when we pursue Christian liberty over love is the very work of God itself. What are you more concerned about? Your personal opinion or the unity of the body of Christ? What are you more concerned about? Making sure you get the exact right Sunday school class that you think is the best option for you? Or the unity of the body of Christ? And Paul closes here in verses 22 and 23 by reminding us that it is the duty of both weak and strong believers to pursue love. That faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now Paul isn't talking about your Christian faith that we should proclaim to the lost world. He's not speaking of salvific faith here. We might read it in this way. That conviction that you have that is on a non-essential Keep that between you and God. For blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating, notice, is not from faith. In other words, don't let anyone pressure you to do something that runs contrary to your convictions Convictions as it relates to non-essentials. Be firm. Stand firm in your convictions. Be confident in your convictions. 
Seek the Lord concerning your convictions. Rejoice in your convictions. Thank God for your conscience that continually serves as a guide. Don't sear your conscience by running contrary to your conscience. The end of verse 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What decision are you making concerning the body of Christ? What does your participation in the body of Christ demonstrate? Christian love? Christian charity? Christian hospitality? Or my way or the highway? See, friends, when we truly understand what Christ has done on our behalf, Paul's compelling argument is more clearly understood. And our right response toward others. If God, through Christ, can bring us who were far away from Him, haters of God, and place us in right relationship with Christ. Can you tell me one thing that somebody in the life of this church can say or do to you that you cannot forgive and not pursue Christian love and charity and hospitality? May God grant to Woodlawn a people who rather demonstrate love than Christian liberty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that through Christ and Christ alone, you have demonstrated genuine Christian love. And that Christian love, Lord, you call us to. You call us to demonstrate. You call us to live. So Lord, I pray this morning for your church at Woodline that the truths of this text would be a passionate pursuit on behalf of each of us and that we would seek Christian love rather than Christian liberty. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated, friend, this morning and reflect upon this text of Scripture? Spend a few moments thinking how this text of Scripture applies to your life. Maybe you need to reflect on your own convictions and place them in a category, essential and non-essential. That might help you flesh out how you are to relate to other brothers and sisters in the context of this church. Maybe today, you need to ask God to forgive you. And maybe even another brother or sister in Christ in this church to forgive you. Because your convictions concerning a matter have actually caused another to, to stumble, to falter. 
maybe friends you have a mindset of that is judgmental you find the majority of your conversations even related to your church being conversations of judgment against another why don't you ask God to forgive you of that and to grant to you a passion to deepen your love for the body of Christ. See, friends, Christian unity and charity is the goal. What are you doing to ensure that Woodlawn lives out that goal? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. If you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, to live out this Christian love in light of what Christ has done for us, myself and Pastor Travis, we'll be down front. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. And maybe you'd just like for one of us to pray with you. And indeed, the truths of this scripture might resonate in your heart, in your life. We would delight in praying with you. But thirdly, maybe God is impressive on your heart. This is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you, may our responses be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would